Many of you remember, if you were here last week, uh, we made an appeal, and we don't want you to forget that appeal to uh, find one Bible study contact so that souls can be won into his kingdom. And this handbook is going to help in the process of being trained and, and sharing the content there that's found in the Word of God and the Spirit of Prophecy to win souls and further uh, the gospel message to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. We're going to go ahead and start with a word of prayer. But before I do that, I want to introduce once again our panelists. We have uh, several pastors up here, Pastor Darrell, uh, Pastor Cameron, and Pastor Bernard. And someone who wasn't here last week, we have a teacher from Grand Rapids, Elena Knapp, and we're pleased to have her join uh, this panel discussion. So without further ado, let's go ahead and bow our heads and invite the Holy Spirit to be in our midst. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time, this opportunity to break open the Word of God. We want to pray in a special way that this Bible study that begins here will not end here, but that throughout the Sabbath day will break open the Word spontaneously during lunchtime, during the afternoon hour, and share what we have learned with one another. We pray that the Bible and its study will become an, a moment-by-moment -moment activity as it changes lives. Be with us now. We pray that the words that are shared are not our own opinions, but may they be words from on high, speak to our minds, and even more importantly, speak to our hearts. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to invite you to turn to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 2, and we're going to be reading from verses 11 through 25. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. And before we delve into this passage, I, many people will hear a sermon. I know Pastor Cameron did the morning devotionals last year at camp meeting, and they'll hear a sermon from Pastor Bentley or Pastor Bernard or Elena Knapp in the classroom. And they'll say, well, how did they discover that Bible truth? And I just wanted to open up to the floor here. Is there a abracadabra? Is there some magical formula that helps us in Bible study? Uh, provide us some practical tips in your Bible study and in your experience. I'd like to open it up to the panelists. Go for it. Well... This is no disrespect to my education. I had a great education, but when I, I had graduated from high school and I had only read one book. It was a book on Lou Gehrig. He was a baseball player, and I think I read it in fifth grade. So it wasn't really an academic. Uh, those of you that know me are like, yeah, no. that's, that's. So um, <clears throat> I, I, I came to this logical conclusion that if I was going to call myself a Christian, I should probably read the book. So I read it, and it, it was amazing. And I thought, well, if I'm going to call myself a Seventh-day Adventist, I should probably like, read at least one of Ellen White's books. And so I did. And what it did is it forced me to the Word of God. I was like, no way did that happen. And then I would get into the Bible, like, it did. So I went through the Conflict of the Ages series, 
and I would just read it, and then I'd read it in the scripture, and I'd compare and compare. And then whenever I found something like was super cool, I'd be like, did you know that this happened? And what I found was a lot of people like, no, it didn't. I'm like, yeah, 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 it did. You know, so, I mean, for me, that's how the Bible came alive, just laying them next to each other and just pouring myself in the Word of God. It was awesome. It wasn't a duty. I just really got into it. It changed my life. Amen. I guess for me... Um I like to keep things very simple, very practical as well. And uh, there was a little Bible study method that I kind of discovered at Southern um, and shared with us by Dr. Philip Simon, and he just referred to it as a relational Bible study. And just three basic questions that I found to be just very powerful and is kind of a good impetus, a good starting place uh, for just really getting beneath the surface. There's nothing wrong with reading through your Bible. That's great, but you're, you're taking overarching, you know, you're more up here with that, just you're getting the overview. But you need to dig in if you're going to prepare for a message or whatever. And so those three questions are very simple. First of all, how did this passage reach or how did it affect the people who first heard it? And so that can lead you into some deep study for the cultural issues, historical issues, and you start chasing those things through the Scripture, answering those questions. Then the second question, very simple, what does this passage tell me about God? I'm not reading the Bible just for novel effect. It's not just a Lou Gehrig novel, right? I'm not, thank you, thank, you, thank you for that segue, by the way. <clears throat> it's deeper than that, right? It's supposed to have an inter- eternal impact on me. And so what does this tell me about God? Then the third question, very simple, is this, so what? I've discovered these things about the people. I've discovered these things about God. Now what am I going to do about it? What are the timeless principles that transcend their culture to our culture? And what are those principles and how am I going to apply them to my life? Now that's a very simple kind of model of exegesis, we might refer to it. But it's something that can be applied for anybody, not just a pastor. Amen. And I want to uh, piggyback on what Chad said about the reading of the Spirit of Prophecy along with the Scripture. You know, sometimes you'll hear like, oh, you just read the Spirit of Prophecy instead of the Bible. But um, a survey was done amongst the North American Division members some years back, and Ministry Magazine published it. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, but um, it said, for example, 82% of the readers, regular readers of the writings of Ellen White, usually or always have daily personal Bible study while only 47% of non-readers do. So wow. the, the idea is, oh, if you'll get into the spirit of prophecy, you're going to take the place of the Bible, when in reality, the opposite is true. It actually drives you to the Word and become more Amen. centered on Christ and His Amen. message. And on the Training Center Church Committee, we realized that that was one of the great needs. And so there, I'll plug the Disciples Japan book again. There's a chapter about um, the very practical method of personal Bible study. And in the back of the book, perhaps the best part of the book is the very back, the appendix, where it has a Bible and Spirit of Prophecy reading plan. Amen. We can daily just go through the whole series, the Conflict of the Ages series and the, and the books relating to it, like uh, Steps to Christ and whatnot, that will, if you've never taken the opportunity to just read through the Bible and see how it's so well woven together and how the Spirit of Prophecy is that inspired commentary on Scripture, I guarantee you it will uplift your life personally. It will give you a deeper, better Christian experience than you've had before. So I would definitely recommend reading them in conjunction. Amen. Amen. Did you appreciate that? 
practical advice. We need to get into the Word of God so that there is revival and reformation in our hearts. And I want to, we need to jump to this text because there's a lot of exciting things here. What we're going to do is we're going to read once again 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 25. We're going to take three verses each. And I'm going to go ahead and start with verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, Abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or unto governors, as unto them that are sent from him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of him that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to science the ignorance of foolish men, as free, not as using your liberty as a cloak, of maliciousness, but as the servants of the Lord. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Amen. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example, that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously." who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wow, these are some powerful, powerful passages. And I just want to throw out to the panel, what really strikes out at you in the beginning verses uh, of, of this passage that we looked at here? Well, one thing that, uh, you know, I think is especially relevant here at camp meeting, we're all pilgrims here at camp meeting. <laughs> and, you know, the pilgrims are going to start returning home, uh, some even tonight, you know, as the Sabbath hours, uh, you know, disappear. But most people, you know, a lot of people are going home tomorrow, so we're pilgrims, right? We're here at a temporary space, and this is really kind of a microcosm of, of, of really the plan of, of what God intends for us. This, this earth is not intended now to be our home. It was at one time. We lost that. We messed it up. Sin came in, marred that picture. But now we're looking forward to a better home. We're looking forward to a better world, or at least we should be. I Amen. think that's what he's calling us here. Yeah, this seems to be the thesis for what comes after because you see there in um, at least the first couple of verses, 11 and 12 seem to set the stage and lay the foundation because in verse 13 it starts with a therefore. That's that right. means in light of what we just established, here's the practical. So the 11 and 12 seems to be the principle, and that principle is that pilgrimage concept. 
you, what struck me also in the reading of this passage is you're going to see it throughout this study today that there are incredible parallels between the, the thought process of Peter and that of Paul. There are a lot of parallels, though. Paul would talk about in Hebrews chapter 11, these great pioneers of faith, you know, and, and he would talk about how they were strangers and pilgrims, and they confessed that they were not of this world, you know, my translation there. But uh, Philippians chapter 3 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. So it has the mindset of while we're here, we're not of here. <laughs> we are of a different place. We're just here for a while. We're passing through. And I, I think with that context, it's interesting just following up with that statement. In that verse, it says, because we're strangers, because we're pilgrims, because we don't belong here, Peter says, abstain from fleshy lust. And that's normally we think of lust as, you know, something that's out there, something that doesn't relate to us. But it's speaking of the, the things that the world desires, the world it seeks after in terms of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Pride is something we all struggle with, and it's something that God wants us to remember that if our citizenship is in heaven, then our conduct, our behavior, our mindset, our, the things that we desire, the things that we love should reflect that citizenship. Let me throw out this question. Do you think that... that First and foremost, our identity is as an American or as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. And I know there's a simple, that's a simple response, but let's, let's flesh that out just a little bit. If you look in the original language, sojourner can be translated foreigner, temporary resident. How many of you believe that we are only temporary residents on this earth? at least until the earth is made new, amen? Pilgrim can also be translated as, as residing in a country not one's own. So what are some of the practical implications that we can draw from this that can help us as a people? Go ahead. Well, it, it's interesting you bring that up because I had an experience recently where um, we were part of a committee that was doing a cultural uh, sensitivity assessment, and, and we took some time and to really explore, you know, relations between different cultures and ethnicities and whatnot, and, and part of the part was to fill out a survey in a form, and I had to reflect on what I am, and it was the category of male-female. It was good that they had those two options only, and, um, and, and there were certain things like age and certain distinctions that were just a drop-down box. You pick one that's already provided, but when it came to the line of ethnicity, I had to write it in myself. And I was trying to be culturally sensitive and I didn't want to mess up and I wasn't sure what it meant. So I had to Google ethnicity and see what the definition is, right? And I didn't know if, like, are they asking if I'm an American? Are they asking if I'm white? Are they asking if I'm, what does that mean? And apparently your ethnicity is, in layman's terms, I guess it's, it's the culture to which you are, are closest tied and have the most connection to. And I just got to thinking, what is the thing about me that is the most identifying thing. Is it my color? Is it my whiteness? My genetic background? Is it my nationality? Is it my Americanism? And it struck me that the, thing, the single most definitive element of me is my identity as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Amen. Amen. And, and, I, and I got to thinking, if I were somehow, for whatever reason, banished to some dark <laughs> part of the globe, 
you know, some, some primitive culture, some other place that had different food, different language, a whole different, like Canada. Um, <laughs> no. my, wife also, is, my wife is from Canada. So I slow down. Know. <laughs> but, but if my national identity were stripped from me, would I be lost? Would I be, but if, and I, no matter where you go in this world, you will find a common culture of Adventism. That Amen. there is a distinctive Christian message, this last day people who have Sabbath school and prayer meeting and church services and they pray for each other, they love, and they have the same outlook, they have the same lifestyle. They have, there is a culture of Christ that supersedes all others. Amen. And there's a citizenship in heaven, and not to downplay our earthly citizenship. No, we, he goes on to talk about the responsibility of being good earthly citizens, but there is a heavenly citizenship that is our privilege and responsibility here that trumps all others. Amen. Amen. Uh, similar thoughts, uh, exactly. Well, you know, and I'm very thankful for the country in which we live. We're here this morning. You know, I'm, I'm very thankful to be an American citizen. You know, I think that we have some of the greatest freedoms, some of the greatest opportunities. So I, you know, I'm, I'm diehard. I'm very thankful to be an American citizen. I had the privilege of serving with the Army. And I always wanted to be in the military, you know, from a little kid and, you know, chase that dream, so to speak, after I got a call to ministry. I thought maybe, well, I can be a military chaplain, serve God and country, right? And that's kind of the motto. In the, but there was, a, there was something that cropped up that presented me with a major challenge. And it's referred to by the Army as the Soldier's Creed. Now, the Soldier's Creed says, I'm an American soldier. I'm a warrior and a member of a team. I serve the people of the United States and live the army of values. So far, so good, right? Here comes the problem. I will always place the mission first. That became a significant challenge for me as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian serving in the military because I, I, I love you. I'm proud to be in the army. I'm going to do, you know, do my duty to do my best, right? But I'm not always going to put the mission first. I must always put God first. Amen. And so that became a defining moment for me in my military experience. And I realized that I could not be a Seventh-day Adventist and be in full harmony with the military. And I know I say that to the challenge of a lot of people perhaps nowadays because, you know, our culture within the Adventist church, we've become more open to military service. And I'm not ashamed that I'm a veteran. I'm proud of that. Yeah, I'm thankful for that. But I cannot always put the military's mission first. I must put God's mission first. And not, I'm not saying that as a Seventh-day Adventist pastor. I'm saying that as a Seventh-day Adventist Christian. Amen. Amen. And I think that once, I think each of us individually have to come to the understanding of our identity and specifically of our identity in Christ. As we, and especially as what Peter is saying here just before this, he says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There's something unique, there's something specific that God is calling us to be and to do at this time in earth's history. And this is a journey that each one of us must take for ourselves. And in so doing, then we can put that mission first. We can understand that this is the context whenever we're faced with a challenge, whenever we're faced with something that's conflicting, we can go back to the Word of God and say, God, you are the first, foremost, and final authority in my life. Where are you leading? Let me make this really, really practical. How many of you own a Facebook account? I see, see some hands out there, and you know, you see a lot of things going on 
uh, on on Facebook, people endorsing one party or the other, and, and a lot of fighting that is taking place uh, on, on Facebook. Do you think that this understanding of where our primary identity lies can help us with some of the challenges that we're seeing on something as simple as Facebook and other social media outlets? Well, I think that my, I want, to, I want my Christianity to trump everything else. Period. Right? Little, uh, what do you call that? Uh, subliminal message. Um, when people look at my social media, I want, I guess that's, those are things, that's what I want to be identified as, is, as a Christ follower. He's my dad. A, a, a lover of, of his family, a lover of his church, a lover of the brotherhood. I mean, that's what I want to be known for. And if I use social media um, in a different way, there's a strong chance that my identity could potentially be something else. That's all. I mean, I, I, I recognize that. that I mean, I, I can imagine if I asked all of you, hey, do you have somebody in your social media you know, family that are, you know, their, their identity is, it has to do with vaccinations or a democratic party, you know, Democrats, the Republicans, right? Or some of it is food, you know, um, that's their identity because this is what I had last night and this is what I had, you know, this morning <laughs> and uh, I'll have this this evening. So, I mean, like, I, I just, I just want my, I just want my identity to be in Christ. And so when I'm approaching social media, <laughs> That's what I want. I don't want people to say he's anything other than he loves Jesus. The other stuff is cool. Like, I'm down with food and I vote. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I just, I don't, that's my identity. I, I want that. I crave that. Not just on the outside. I crave that on the inside. And if I go on rants, it will possess my life. And I only want him to. Amen. I want to take it back a little before social media existed. Uh, when I was in high school, um, many moons ago, I graduated in 92. Any 92ers in here? Okay, I've got three of you. Praise the Lord. They're still alive. They're st we're still alive. Um, we've made it this far. But I want to, back in high school, before I knew the Lord, my identity was in heavy metal music. I wanted to be a part of that scene. I wanted to look like, and I know, try to get this in your mind, right? I had hair. I, I had. You can't get it out. No. I'm sorry. You have a mullet. It just freaks me out. <laughs> Business in the front part. Yeah, okay. Um, anyway, but the long hair, you're exactly right. The long hair. My wardrobe consisted, Brother Andy, of 17 black T-shirts of one heavy metal band and two pair of jeans. That was my very first, that was my wardrobe. So my identity was completely wrapped up in this, this music, this genre of music, and this group of people. Fortunately, I had a cousin that was burned out on drugs, so I never got involved in the drug scene of it, but the alcohol and some other stuff were trappings. And so that was my identity. And I think the same thing, you know, we're, we're not immune to it today. You know, there's still the headbangers. You know, there's still the jocks. We could use all of these stereotypical statements, but the, the, the truth of the matter is that identity had to go away when I was introduced to Jesus Christ. 
Amen. And when I met my, my, my now wife, Ginger, which would be 23 years come this Monday, praise the Lord for a godly wife, amen? Amen. I had to borrow clothes to go over to her house the first time because my buddy was like, listen, this girl's a Christian. You can't wear that T-shirt over there. Yeah, they won't let you in the house. Well, it wasn't, that, mom was the worst problem. So I actually borrowed clothes to go visit Ginger's family the first time. And, you know, so I had to be, these changes were coming upon me before I even realized what was happening. But, you know, eventually I was like, you know what? This music is not compatible with Christ. Mm. This music has to go out of my life. Praise the Lord, I got a haircut, and I'm overdue now. It's starting to touch my ears, and so, you know, the military ruined me for that. But that, that was my identity, but that had to change when Christ came into the picture, and I think the same holds true for today. I don't care if you're deeply steeped in you know, bipartisan politics, which a lot of people are. I don't care if you're in, you know, enraptured with social justice issues, which a lot of people are. And I'm not saying we shouldn't pay attention to certain things, but is that my complete identity, or does it come back to like what Pastor DeVazier was saying, is Christ that primary identity? You know, and I think a practical way to find where our identity is, because, you know, the Bible says that our heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? And I think, for me, when I'm faced with this question, the first thing I ask myself, am I offended? And if I'm offended, why am I offended? And it makes me think of this verse in Psalms 119, verse 65. It's Psalms 119, 65. And um, this is what it says. Psalms 119, 165. Great peace have they that love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. And, you know, at the end of the day, that's the question I think we must ask ourselves. If we're offended by something, ask yourself why. Am I offended because God's name has been defamed? Or am I offended because someone has said something about me that made me feel upset? Or someone has said something about a particular social group or whatever it may be that I didn't like? Um, that's not to say that we should allow people to be disrespectful to humanity. I think as Christians and as citizens of the king of the universe, God is bringing us up here. The, the world looks at this level when it comes to equality. God's up here when it comes to respecting and honoring humanity. And I think that's where we need to, we need to rise above, rise above these constant dissensions that we see in our communities and sometimes, unfortunately, even in our own churches. We must be zealous for God and his character to be represented in what we do and how we speak and what we, what we preach. Cameron, and then I have a, something I'd like to read. No, that's a, that's, that's a fantastic point. And it seems that, now, this one isn't my fault. There we go. <laughs> the, it seems that we are living in an increasingly sensitive, easily offended culture. Not only do I disagree now, but I am hurt and I'm angry because of the, you know, That's and right. that this idea of living in peace and not being offended so easily, because you look at this passage that Peter's talking about, and when he says, I beg you, he's pleading you, yeah. sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, because look at verse 12, um, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, it does not say if, it says when. You will be maligned, misunderstood, you will be besmirched, your character will be smeared, you will be called names, and it, do we really want the, how did Christ deal with those kind of things? Was he easily offended? 
Or did he have a thick skin because he had his eyes fixed on a higher and better place? Amen. We, we have to develop a Christ-like, um, you almost think like, oh, to be Christ-like is to be more sensitive. We can be sensitive to the sufferings of others, but he had a thick skin. You know, he, was, he had a callus on there, and he went through the day, and he had push, as Ellen mm. White called it. And I think that we need to have that, especially, and this is what Paul, Peter is begging them to have, because you will be mm-hmm. persecuted. You're mm-hmm. going to face it. What did Paul say? All Christians are going to face persecution. So we need to know how to deal with it now and have that peace in Christ that passes understanding. Amen. When, when self is dead, it cannot be hurt right? When pride is dead, it cannot be hurt. I want to, and I'll get to you, Brother Daryl, um, in light of this identity, this primary identity, whether it be race or nationality, I want to read a statement from Christ's Object Lessons that is powerful. She says, no distinction on account of nationality, race, or caste is recognized by God. That's a powerful statement. He is the maker of all mankind. All men are of one family by creation, and all are one through redemption. Christ came to demolish every wall of partition that every soul may have free access to God. Whatever the difference in religious belief, a call from suffering humanity must be heard, and it must be answered. The only thing I wanted to add and kind of piggyback with what Elena was saying and Pastor Cameron were saying, you know, we're not looking to be offended. I mean, what were Jesus' words uh, on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? He says it's a blessing when you're persecuted. Mm -hmm. But it's not a blessing when you're persecuted because somebody put down your favorite baseball team. He didn't say blessed are you when they persecute your basketball team. He didn't say, blessed are they when they persecute your politician. He didn't say, blessed are you when they persecute your favorite social justice issue. He says, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. So the blessing is only going to come when my identity is completely immersed in who Jesus Christ is. And what did Christ get offended over? He didn't walk into the, the, the temple area and start tossing over money changers' tables and running out the livestock be, be, because whatever sport they played lost. He was offended. He was righteously indignant, right, because of how they were treating his father. They had turned that which was supposed to be a house of prayer, he said, into a den of thieves. Mm. And, and I just a practical thing, I think of Desmond Doss sold out for Christ, that was his identity. But he, he wanted to honor his country, and he loved his country, and I think there's nothing wrong. I, I am so thankful that I'm an American. Amen. 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 I mean, I love that. I, I've traveled all over the world, and I love it. Every time I come home, I sing <laughs> the Star Spangled Banner, and I, I tell her, oh, you know, I, I mean, I don't, that's probably not appropriate, but anyway, yeah, headbang, that's, I'm sorry. Anyway, the point is, you understand, I, like I am so thankful that I live in this country, and I praise God. But my, I, hopefully, I'm, I'm the best American I can be when I am sold out for Christ. I think Christians whose identity are in Christ are the greatest Americans. So I don't, I don't see there being a conflict there. And Paul, you know, Paul, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. 
you know, but his identity was Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, those are just two human examples of, of I see that makes sense. And, yes. Well, I was just going to say, just as, you know, was pointed out earlier in verse 13, we now, we come to that therefore, and because of who your identity is, it does not negate how you're supposed to interact with governmental authorities. Just because you're a Christian, you don't come up and say, you have no authority over me. Who do you, who do you think you are to pull me over? <laughs> try that out. Just before camp meeting, uh -oh. building up to camp meeting, yeah, here comes confession time. And, you know, your license expire on your birthday. I was so wrapped up in thinking about camp meeting, trying to make sure things were covered at the church. I'm just riding around in my, in my blissful little ignorance, and all of a sudden I get pulled over. Right, and the policeman pulls me over, and th this is one of the few times that I was genuinely bewildered. You know, most of the time you know, oh man, I was speeding, I did this or whatever. Do you know why we pulled you over? Officer, I have absolutely zero idea. Is it because I'm driving a Jeep? I mean, what is it? He's like, you're driving on an expired license, and by the way, your tag's dead. I'm like, oh. My birthday was three days before that. You know, so, so I didn't say to him, who do you think you are? Don't you know I'm an Adventist Christian? Get out of here. <laughs> no, I laid myself at the mercy and I said, please, I will go today to the Secretary of State. Please. He said, well, I'm going to have to write you for one. So he wrote me for driving without a license, which I promptly went and got a fresh license. But I submitted myself. That's what we do as a godly citizen under the authority of a local, regional, or national government. And, and I think that's what the verse is even saying there in 19. It says, for this is thankworthy. If a man for conscious sake toward God endure grief and suffering wrongfully, um, for what glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your own faults? And I think sometimes that's where the personal, you know, if, if we're pointed out that we're wrong, that's where pride rises up and says, no, I'm not wrong. You're the one that's wrong. Right. We become very defensive, and that's where offense comes because pride rises up. When the, the Christ-like response should be, you know what? You're right. How can I, how can I make this better? Amen. And I think that that's where we need to begin to change our paradigm individually and even as a, a church body. Some of you, one of you touched upon this, and we're gonna, we, we've laid that, that uh, groundwork, as Pastor Cameron mentioned, and now it gets to uh, this therefore passage in verse 13, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king or to governors, uh, for, to those who are, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men and so forth. So there's this component here. Uh, even though our primary identity is as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, at the same time there's this level of, of submission that we are to have to those in authority. Can we speak to that just a little bit in a practical way? You know, when I was going back through and reading this this morning, something that really stuck out to me is that I'm an English teacher, and I usually tell my students, if you're confused about a certain piece of literature or text, take out the parenthetical statements or take out the extra information and just read the main clause of the sentence. And so I did that this morning. It says, submit yourselves, therefore, to the ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. And so here's the clause. So I, I skipped the clause, which is a list of all those people. So submit yourselves... And then you skip down to verse 14, 
For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. And it's interesting, Peter almost equates this idea of submitting with well-doing. And I think it's really interesting that oftentimes our minds get, at least for me, I was getting stuck on what does it mean to submit? What is a practical way to submit? And I realized that Peter already answered it. How can I do well in my community? Amen. You're, you, I mean, you're talking about some practical ways. I think it, it kind of goes back to the previous example I was just using. I mean, we should obey the speed limit. You know, one example I heard uh, one morning, uh, Elder Mitchell was actually speaking to a group of us as pastors, and um, he made the comment. He said this publicly, so I'm not airing his dirty laundry. Um, he said this to us group of pastors. He said, you know, I was in my way, I'm on my way to the office, and somebody who worked at the office was behind me, and he said I was speeding, and they, they, they wondered why I was speeding on the way to the office. And he said, you know, I'm not setting a good example. Mm. And, you know, I was just impressed by that. I was like, you know what? I do have an obligation in every facet of my life, not just where it's convenient, to try to be a good citizen, to try to be a good example. And I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I had had a number of speeding tickets leading up to his example over the years. And I found this wonderful feature of an automobile. It's called cruise control. It's fabulous. <laughs> it's on the steering wheel. It's right near the handle there. And, 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 I, and so that's what I do. And here's what I've discovered. Not only do I arrive at pretty much the same time, I get better fuel mileage, and I'm not constantly looking over my shoulder. I'm not constantly looking in the hedgerow wondering, am I going to get busted for speeding? I don't have to have a fancy device Velcroed to my dash that beeps when the, you know, the cops start getting near. I can just set my cruise control, and I'm honoring God at the same time. And in the state of Michigan, that, the speed limit is that pretty fast, right? So. Well, it's just recently increased in the northern part, so God is good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Amen. All but, the time. But cruise control time. works at higher speeds, too. <laughs> now, the, um, one of the things that we're all kind of talking about here is like speed limits and these things that these are not oppressive laws. They're just reasonable societal norms that we've all agreed to through our legislature, and we've just, you know, this is what we do. Now, what is striking to me about this is Peter is writing from a context. Who were some of the civil authorities in his time? Nero. We're talking about Herod. Yeah. <laughs> Nero. I mean, this is, this is the era of that time. And he's, and you think of, like, Daniel living in the Babylonian Empire. You know, he's always, oh, king, live forever. And he's, you know, that we have instances where either himself or his friends are under penalty of death for something that is not bad, not inherently wrong, you know, but they would still find a way. Because I, I, we're looking at this, I feel that we're looking at this through the lens of, um, you know, United States citizens. And the Bible even describes this nation as a beast with lamb-like horns, right? That's right? Republicanism and Protestantism, the freedom from a pope and the freedom from a king that we have representative uh, authority. This is wonderful. And we, we relish that. And we have, I think, come to expect that that's what all society is like. And that's what all governments are built like. And it's not the case. There's a reason right. the Bible denotes those as lamb-like. But even in this country, we're told that that same beast will speak like a dragon, there's a transition. That we, exactly. So we need, to, um, we need to keep in mind that Peter is writing from a position of someone under much more duress than what we currently experience, yes. and that we need to develop a mindset of faithfulness to Christ, even when, because again, it goes to, he's saying, if you get persecuted for foolishness and you endure it, 
What do you want, a sticker? Of course, you did something wrong. Good for you. But what happens when you're doing the right thing and the government says you're in trouble for that, do you get offended then? Do you get hurt? Do you lash back? Or do you take it at that time with a Christ-like patience? There's a reason in those verses in Revelation it talks about here is the patience of the saints, the endurance, that we need to develop that Christ-like perspective that, praise the Lord, we have it easy now, but there is a time coming, and we need to get geared up. Amen. And I want to transition in a little bit to the example of Jesus that Peter outlines. And many of you touched upon this. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. And I see Peter here speaking to the fact that we need to be respectful of our leadership, whether it be uh, at the church level, at the government level, and at the local church level. And don't you agree that we need to do a better job in this respect? And do you have any comments on that? Well, I just think of Daniel. Um, he lived his life in such a way. I'm, I'm seeing here in Daniel 6, verse 5. The men said, we shall not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of God. He was so obedient to all of the rules of a, of a pagan kingdom that that's what they said. And he lived his life in such a way that he was just so above board. I mean, that's a rebuke to me. There are times where if I feel someone's treating me wrong or I think a rule is dumb, I feel like I have license to obey, or I mean to disobey. Um, and being respectful and honoring and, and, and taking the high road doesn't validate wickedness. It just shows holiness. Mm-hmm. And when they throw him in the lion's den for doing absolutely nothing wrong, when they come get him, his first words to them, to the king, is, O king, live forever. Not get, you know, Lord, throw this wicked king in here. You know what I mean? It's like, o king, may we switch places. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, come check out the kitties. They're so fun. You know, shut the door. You know, whatever. I'm like, he didn't do that. I mean, he was, he was just so honorable. And, and, and that type of life is an inspiration. I mean, even the pagans go, man. You know, wow, this guy is so amazing. And that's, again, that's what I want to be. I, I, and I am so not there, but I'm praying that God will not let go of me and drag me, <laughs> drag me there. I want that. No, that's and, what he, and that's what Peter's talking about, that by doing good, you may put to silence those who are critiquing you. And, and he's coming straight from Christ. I mean, he's paraphrasing. He, he says, where Christ said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify, and glorify your Father in Amen. heaven. That somehow our patient endurance and goodness in the, in the face of badness is a glory to God, thus making it a Christian duty. Amen. It is part of our Christian walk to walk like Jesus and glorify God in our actions. Amen. Amen. I totally agree with that. I want, I want to take it one, one other turn. We're, we're, we're talking about in the context of the passage what the Gentiles and what those outside the church think. And I think that's, we obviously want to set a good example. We don't want to smear the name of Christ in, in any way. 
But what are we teaching our children? You know, one thing that I've always tried to instill with my kids, and you know, we all struggle as parents, we all have different challenges, but whether I agree with a particular president or not, I have always told my kids that individual is not just Obama. That individual is not just Trump. That's President Obama. That's President Trump. And, it, and it's not that I'm trying to you know, be partisan and political or any of that. I want to respect the highest office in this land, and I want to teach my children that I don't care whether or not you agree with everything that person is doing. How about have the decency to at least respect the office? And so I think when we teach our children, when they see us going off and saying all manner of things, not, and let, let's take it out of the political realm. Let's say that we go home and we're upset with something the pastor did. And we, and we, have, the pastor for, we have the pastor for lunch, you know, is kind of the old saying. You know, how, how, what are we teaching our children about how to handle conflict resolution? What are we teaching our children about how to handle ourselves with decorum, with decency, with, 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 with Christian taste? Amen. And so I just think it's very important that we be very careful, not in these rants. I mean, our kids see what we're posting. Our kids hear what we're saying. What example are we setting for them? I think Elena was next. Uh, ladies first. Thank you. <laughs> You know, um, as you were sharing, I, I actually was going to share this um, even before you began to speak about what we say about those in leadership that are around us. You know, um, when I was a young person, um, I know I look young, but it, I'm almost 40 now. But when I was younger in high school and, and in college, um, I can remember um, I had the opportunity one time to sit on a nominating committee. And that was the most earth-shattering moment of my entire life. And I'm going to really encourage you guys to think twice before you say things about your fellow church members. Because it, it shook me as a young person. I almost walked out of that church and didn't want to come back. And so I agree wholeheartedly. Praise the Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord. Can I just read this Christ Object Lessons? Um, she says that Satan has many helpers. I'm just going to jump around here. You can, you can check it out later. It's page 45. Many who listen to the preaching of the Word of God make it the subject of criticism at home. They sit in judgment on the sermon as they would on the words of a lecturer or a political speaker. The message that should be regarded as the Word of the Lord to them is dwelled upon with trifling and sarcastic comment. The minister's character, motives, actions, and the conduct of the fellow members of the church are freely discussed. Come on now, you know you've done that over the loaf. Right? Past the special K-loaf. What? Did you see what she was wearing? What is that? Severe judgment is pronounced, gossip or slander repeated, and this is in the hearing of the unconverted. Often this is, these things are spoken by parents in the hearing of their children. <coughs> Thus in the homes of professed Christians, many youth are educated to be infidels. Hmm. And the parents question why their children are so little, little interested in the gospel and are so ready to doubt the truth of the Bible. They wonder that it is so difficult to reach them with moral and religious influences. They do not see, here comes the rebuke to me, their own example has hardened the hearts of their children. The good seed finds no place to take root, and Satan catches it away. Powerful, powerful stuff. And I, I, we have a handful of minutes left and I, I don't know about you, but I would like to end on the example that exactly. Jesus Amen. gives to us. And I'll, I'll read it, and then we're going to close with commentary on this. Jesus, 
left us an example. I'm reading from verse 21. Leaving us an example that you and I should follow his steps who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. That small rudder that can take you to very far away places. Verse 23, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, although he could have, but committed himself to him, his father, who judges righteously. He entrusted that scenario, that situation when he was being abused. He handed over that scenario to God and left it into his hand. Could we learn more from the example of Jesus? Well, you know, I, I, one of my favorite passages speaking to this is in 1 John chapter 3. And in verse 2, he says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it's going back to that our citizenship is in heaven, present tense, right? But then he adds, and in addition to current status, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. There's a growth process. But we know that when he is revealed, that's a reference to the second coming of Jesus, we shall be how? Like him. It does not say we shall be made like him in a moment. It said we will be like him as we grow. And how on earth do we grow? We look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and by his grace, not only do we have pardon for our past sins, praise the Lord, but we have power over those future temptations, over the risk of falling. And then it says in verse 3, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. The only hope of purification that we have is to look unto Jesus, that example, and distrust self and more trust him until perhaps even unconscious to ourselves, we begin to reflect him more and more and others may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Amen. Just a passage that really, something that uh, speaks to my heart uh, from Councils on Health, uh, chapter 48, uh, page uh, 105. It says, um, speaking of Christ, uh, you know, he, he took the cross, right? We understand. And he did it willingly. And he didn't look forward to it, right? We remember Gethsemane, Lord, if this cup can pass from me, let it be so. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So he endured the shame of the cross. Notice this. It says, there is a decided unwillingness with some to endure the cross and despise the shame. Some will be laughed out of their principles. Conformity to the world is gaining ground among God's people who profess to be pilgrims and strangers waiting and watching for the Lord's appearing. There are many professed Sabbath keepers in who are more firmly wedded to worldly fashions and lusts than they are to healthy bodies, sound minds, or sanctified hearts. Hmm. And, and that's just something that has just been a rebuke to me lately. I don't want to be someone who is laughed out of my principles. In other words, as somebody laughs at me or pokes fun at me for what I believe, oh, well, you know, just let me keep that quiet. Let me not really reveal who I am in Christ. And that conformity to the world, it's so easy for the world to get its hooks in us. And I don't want to be of the world. I want to be of Christ. Amen. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about, the, as well as Pastor DeVazier, that there's, and I think Pastor Bradshaw even spoke about it on his first night, 
There is a power when we contemplate the life of Christ, and especially the cross. And that's what Peter is pointing to there. Who, when he was reviled, he didn't, re- he didn't push back that. When he was threatened, he wasn't offended because he knew what his mission was. He knew his identity. He knew his purpose there on the cross. And his purpose, he looked at each one of us and said, I'm going to stay here. I'm going to allow this persecution to take place because why? He wants each one of us to be with him in heaven. And I think the more and more that we contemplate and behold our Savior on the cross, that is where that change, as, as um, Pastor Vazier was saying, that there's this amazing transfer, transformation that takes place in our hearts and especially in our mind and our desires, not desiring the lusts of the world, the fashion, the things that this world has to offer. Verse 21, for you have been called for this purpose. Peter's saying, look, the reason Jesus called you was to do that, which is really intriguing. You, you read 11 to 20. Yeah, like God, that's why he called you to actually act that way. And then he goes, because that's how he acted. And you say, well, why did he act that way? And this is what is fundamental to me. Like I'm an egomaniac. And Jesus says, it's not about you, Chad. It's never been about you. Get over yourself. Pour your life out as a drink offering so that somebody might see me. It, that's what it's about. That's why I love last week the call to have a Bible study. Like pray, beg God for a Bible study to win a soul this year because that's what it's about. As much as you like food, vacations, whatever. It's absolutely not about it. It's not about retirement. It's not about the home. It's not about the car. It's about pouring out your life so that one person could come to Jesus Christ because there will be no starless crowns in the kingdom. And, 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 and Peter's like, if you get this, if you live like this, you'll be acting like Christ. And if you act like Christ... You're going to save people. And that's the greatest thing we could ever do on this planet was have the Lord use us to lead someone to Jesus. Amen. Praise the Lord. Were you blessed this morning? I just want to praise God. How many of you want to keep your eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith? And may that be uh, the appeal in our prayer that we can be like like Jesus in our lives, so that when people see us, they'll be one to the gospel truth because they see the love of Christ flowing out from each of us here this morning. And with that, I'm going to close with a word of prayer. I want to thank all the panelists, and I praise God that the Holy Spirit spoke through us and into your hearts and into our minds because it's a sermon for us uh, this morning. Let's bow our heads as we close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the word of God. Without it, we have no direction. And without it, we don't know how to reach you, find you. And ultimately, it is you who finds us. All of us are like sheep that have gone astray. And we thank you for rescuing us, rescuing us from the pit of sin in which we lie. And now help us to reflect your image, your life, so that souls may be won into your kingdom. We thank you, Lord. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ who answers prayers. 
according to his word. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.